We translate for those who can't understand. We write for those who can't hear. We describe for those who can't see. Subti Subtitles and accessibility for film, television and theater. Subti.com Fred, 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 Fred. This is Natasha Sinjanovic for Fred Film Radio. Fred Film Radio, Zvami Sambor Pretershik. Fred Film Radio, Sono Angela Prudenzi. Essa è Fred Film Radio, io chiamo Ariane Morissal, del Festival di Berlino. Angela Cerbi per Fred Film Radio, on è al Festival di Venise. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Cinephile, welcome to the Big Fred Tuesday, Fred Film Radio's weekly show on all things cinema with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. The show is hosted and produced by yours truly, Matt Mikucci. We're still buzzing from our recent coverage of the Rome Film Fest from just a few weeks ago, and we'll be honoring that by playing some of the content we created at the Italian capital's annual celebration of movies on this very show. But we're also keeping an eye on other upcoming film festivals in different parts of the world. So, let me start by mentioning a couple of dates. ITFA, the International Documentary Film Festival of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, will be taking place from the 17th of November to the 28th of November. The Torino Film Festival in Italy will take place from the 26th of November to the 4th of December. And we're also keeping an eye on Saudi Arabia, where the Red Sea Film Festival in Jeddah is set to begin on the 6th of December and end on the 15th of December. So whether physical or remote, we're hoping to bring you some content from all the aforementioned festivals and more. So if you're a true cinephile, I would suggest that you watch this space. In the meantime, let me also tell you what else we've got going on as far as this episode of the Big Fred Tuesday is concerned. We're going to be speaking with Fatima Dazi about her documentary Fatih's Choice, which was presented at Doc Leipzig recently. And if you remember, a while back we spoke in a previous episode of the BFT about Steps a non-profit organization that aims to empower pan-African voices by encouraging filmmakers from there to tell stories of their regions, slash country, slash people, and so on, from the inside. Well, Fatih's Choice is one of those documentaries, and like I said, it recently premiered at Doc Leipzig in Germany, so I'm excited to speak with its director. But we're also going to be celebrating another seminal figure of film history, the iconic Jean-Paul Belmondo. And of course, we will return with our popular, regular conclusive segment of cinephile recommendations popcorn classics with all that being said my suggestion to you is to as always fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air this is the big fred tuesday fred Because we will be interviewing one of the projects of Generation Africa, a collection of 25 documentaries produced by Steps, which aim to shine a light on the future of youth in Africa through the topic of migration. I thought it would be a good idea to start the show by revisiting my interview with one of its producers, Tiny Mungwe, which was broadcast in a previous episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. Take a listen. Because the, this, this might be the first time that our listeners actually hear about Steps, would you be able to tell us a little bit about it and what it does, just as an introduction? 
Sure. Steps is a non-profit media company that's focused in supporting the growth of documentary in Africa, um, other parts of the global south, um, and supporting documentary filmmakers in their storytelling endeavors, but also connecting them with organizations, communities where documentary can have real impact. So we work in the production of films. Uh, we work in audience development as well. We have a network of mobile cinemas across the southern and eastern countries. Eastern, uh, Southern and Eastern African countries where uh, we work with community-based organizations to use documentaries already existing um, to have difficult conversations that move societies forward, but also to make participatory films that help communities to reflect on their their challenges, their struggles, but also their possibilities for victories. Um, we also have a online platform for documentary called Afridocs.net, which is geo-blocked for Africa, where we curate uh, films from Africa and the rest of the world about um, documentary films about, you know, urgent social issues, but also that reflect like the art of documentary storytelling. Recently, we've been working for the past uh, uh, five years, five to seven years, we've been working on a collaborative anthology of 25 films from 16 countries across the continent made by African filmmakers, uh, reflecting the realities of African youth, which is the biggest youth demographic in the world, and um, looking at those experiences from the lens of migration. So we've worked with... Filmmakers from Africa, film production companies from Africa, but also um, in collaboration with co-producers, uh, organizations, partners, and then sometimes also um, experts and consultants in developing this project from story to production, in post-production, and now we're starting to have some films that are appearing in the international festival circuit. When did this project start exactly? Um, we sent out a call in 2018 for stories across the continent. Uh, we sent out a call in Anglophones uh, or English-speaking countries on the continent, as well as uh, Francophone or French-speaking countries on the continent. So this was a project that was for the first time allowing filmmakers to communicate and collaborate ac- across this kind of neo-colonial or post-colonial divide. We held workshops in Accra, Nairobi, and Ouagadougou where we brought in story experts but also local media producers like writers and journalists and musicians to talk about the stories that filmmakers had submitted but also to talk about what were the stories predominantly told in the media and what was the lens in which migration is spoken about in the media and what opportunities they were to kind of quote-unquote shift the narrative. So some of the filmmakers were able to reflect on all of these conversations and uh, submitted new stories or developed new stories based on the conversations that were had. Um, so we then supported some filmmakers to do um, further research, you know, with the camera, get to know their, ca- their characters and the kind of world of story, and also to do research and rewrite their projects uh, with time and professional and financial support. And then um, from then we went into production where each of the filmmakers uh, were kind of uh, given an opportunity to work on the stories, like to, f- to film their stories, but also 
with uh, support from expert documentary storytellers from both Africa and outside of Africa. And um, now, predominantly, we're in the post-production phase, working with filmmakers to now do the final, final uh, go at the writing of the story, the making of the story in the edit. And um, we've been seeing a lot of films kind of taking shape. And um, right now, we have two films which are in the festival circuit, which are showing at festivals in Europe and North America. And we're expecting more films to be finished uh, between now and July. And uh, we'll be having these films showing at more festivals, uh, God willing. And we'll also be having a global broadcasting event. Um, we're working in partnership in Europe uh, with Arte, the three departments of Arte, so France, ZDF and Strasbourg as our main broadcasting partner in Europe. Um, our, broad, our distribution platform, AfriDocs, will uh, be in charge of the broadcasting that takes place in Africa. So it's going to be an international broadcasting event that takes place next year with these main partners, but also other broadcasters around the world. So we're also very much concerned with not just the making of the films, but to also think very carefully about how those films can connect to an audience and how those films can be a catalyst for conversations at all levels of society. So I seem to understand what you said, that it was uh, this this series is about talking about modern Africa, but also, importantly, from a modern African viewpoint. Yeah, like as I said, there are not many films. We have a, a platform called AfriDocs where we curate films about topics, including migration. We have a focus on migration on AfriDocs. And there are not many films there which are made by African filmmakers and therefore which represent an African perspective. So it was important to uh, create a project that supports the growth of African documentary storytelling uh, by giving the or lending a voice or giving a voice to African storytellers and giving them agency to make stories in their own terms. So just out of curiosity, it's been a, it's been kind of a hectic year around the world and, uh, the pandemic has obviously kind of slowed down all these pro processes, but uh, has it been an issue for you guys as far as, uh, working on these films was concerned? Yeah, certainly. Um, firstly, there were many countries where, uh, well, I mean, all over the world, uh, there was a kind of a stop to normal activities. Um, and I think in the early days of the pandemic, um, lots of activities ground to a halt because generally we didn't know what was going on, you know? Uh, so a lot of our productions came to a stop and we had to kind of go through a process of restarting them again. But also there were like many storytelling challenges that came from that interruption uh, for films that were already in production. Uh, so it's been a lot of uh, work coordinating with all of our co-producers, uh, problem solving, coming up with solutions. Uh, but also it's been... Um, very fortunate that I think we've been supported with funders, um, uh, organizations we're partnering with, as well as like funding partners who have been um, able to support us to continue the project um, and stay on track with uh, the overall goals of the project. I think uh, certainly the pandemic has been like a big 
stress factor um, for everyone in the industry, but it's also been like a, a, a very important opportunity for us to figure out strategies for resilience, um, which has been the case in, in our kind of uh, community, our Generation Africa community. To listen to the full interview, check out fred.fm forward slash UK. That's fred.fm forward slash UK. Fred. Cinephile, welcome to the segment of the show that we inaugurated last week and that aims to spotlight the lives and works of important figures in the history of film. The structure is fairly simple. It's a two-part segment where, in the first part, I provide you with a brief biographical overview of the person in question, and in the second part, I highlight three of their films that I feel are most representative of their work. This segment is called Celluloid Heroes. For today's segment, I decided to talk about one of the most iconic European leading men of the 20th century who actually recently passed away earlier this year. Jean-Paul Belmondo was a French actor best remembered for his iconic contributions to the fabled French New Wave of the 1960s, which he embodied the anti-heroic spirit of. But in reality, he was much more than that. As he got his start in art films, progressed into a leading star of popular cinema and genre movies, and later became a more mature dramatic actor. So Jean-Paul Belmondo was the son of a sculptor, he was a terrible student in his school days, and had a brief stint at a boxing career before eventually deciding to quit that and study acting in his Parisian hometown. He actually risked being typecast in the role of the bad boy, the rebel, the criminal, particularly after garnering widespread success as the lead in Jean-Luc Godard's debut feature Breathless from 1960, which really remains one of the most iconic films of the French New Wave and one of the most iconic films of the era at large. This role turned him into an icon and encouraged the French press to link him with the legend of American actor James Dean. But later works in the films of such great directors as Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, François Truffaut and Italian neorealist master Vittorio De Sica showed that he could be versatile as well. So, towards the end of the 60s and for much of the 70s, he linked himself to a number of genre projects, many of which showcased his agility and physical presence. So it was thrillers and action movies. But, from the late 80s onwards, he was able to successfully transition from acting heartthrob and action hero to mature dramatic actor. Notable performances from this period include his roles in Itinerary of a Spoiled Child from 1988 and Les Miserables from 1995, where he played multiple roles. Both of these films were directed by Claude Lelouch. In 2001, he suffered a stroke that left him unable to act for several years, but he managed to make a comeback to the screen in 2008's A Man and His Dog. Interestingly, he insisted that this role would showcase his disabilities rather than conceal them. But this would be his final film. So when I personally saw him at the 2016 Venice Film Festival, where he received a career award... I was starstruck and absolutely impressed by the way that, although clearly in pain, he was graceful and charming to the point of entertaining some of the usual embarrassing questions from members of the press who bothered him with questions about his personal life and all that kind of stuff. But I will always remember that smile on his face. The smile that made me understand that he truly was one of the greats and really from another time. 
he had such an unparalleled charisma that it's difficult to imagine we'll ever have another Jean-Paul Belmondo again. But later in the show, I will highlight three films of his that I feel are quintessential and a good starting point for anybody looking to start exploring the body of work that he left behind. But for now, back for more film conversations on the Big Fred Tuesday after this. Fred Film Radio. Joining us at this time is Fatih Madazi, director of a new documentary called Fatih's Choice, produced with the assistance of Steps' Generation Africa program, which aims to shine a light on the future of youth in Africa to the topic of migration. In fact, this is kind of special because this is the first time that we get to speak with one of the directors of one of the works in this series. So Fatima, welcome to the show. Hi, good afternoon or morning from your end. Yeah, exactly. It's a real pleasure for me to speak with you. And, uh, and you know, we're going to be talking about your documentary, Fatih's Choice, uh, which was recently presented at Doc Leipzig. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, uh, this, this whole, um, this documentary in general. But I want to begin by finding out a, a little bit about yourself, because this is the first time we talk. So I always like to kind of take this opportunity to find out more about the person I'm speaking with. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and especially, how you got into film and when you started thinking that uh, you wanted to, to uh, you know, make your own films? So um, let me begin with, um, actually, I did um, have, I have a first degree in film, but I majored in um, animation. But when I got out of school, um, the opportunities were very limited, you see, for animation. So I ended up having um, to work with um, TV you know, so I was heavily, um, ha- I have experience in TV um, with on-air promotions and um, marketing and licensing. So it was during my TV years that I had opportunity to do a success story for UNESCO on a women, women and a girls' education and also adolescent reproductive health. So that was when um, I had opportunity to meet people, you know, from deprived areas of Ghana and to tell their stories. And um, that was when I had, let me say, the calling to do a film, you know. But at that time, I was still, I had the idea to do something on migration, you know, um, on how returnees are being treated, you know, because I also wanted to, understand our line of thinking, you know, about people deciding to return and also how society, you know, influences people not to be content with whatever they have, but they like to force their way to seek for greener pastures abroad, you know. So I had um, the idea of uh, to treat my game. That was my interest, but at that time, I didn't have a character to work with and funding was also limited. And I, I was just um, seeking funding when, um, fortunately, I came across a flyer, you know, uh, about Generation Africa, a new project. And they wanted to treat uh, something on migration. So if we have an idea, we can just submit it and then who see um, the way forward and stuff like so I, I saw the flyer and I just uh, pitched my story and then that's how come I I, I, um, I was selected for the film and we had a series of workshop and a proper pitching to move to the next stage 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, this is uh, Generation Africa, uh, you know, produced by Steps. We've talked about this before in in our show, actually. But you did mention that uh, it, you wanted to make a film about migration. But having said yeah. that, I've seen uh, documentaries about migration, numerous of them. But this film was really exciting because it looks at the topic of migration from a point of view that I've never quite seen before. It's just to explain it to the to the listeners. It's about very briefly, you know, it's about a woman uh, from Ghana who migrates to Italy and that who eventually does the unthinkable, it seems, uh, from watching the film. She returns mm-hmm. to Ghana and her hometown. Mm-hmm. So particularly for those who have not seen the film, what does it mean when a woman like Fatih returns? Yeah, so first of all, the main reaction is that you are a failure, you know, because people have a goal. People have this preconceived mind that the moment you reach Europe, you should come back with a lot of money, or you have to make it big. First of all, a lot of families, um, you know, make it's kind of an investment. So people expect their investment back, uh, investment back, and you have to make it. When you go to Europe, you have to make sure that you have your life should change with your experience or exposure to Europe. So the moment Fatih decided to come back with the aim, main aim of coming because of her children and not bringing anything, she was seen as a failure, you know, a failure in society, you know, because she, she wasn't able to reach the goal of making it in Europe and then coming back. Uh, do you think that her situation was even tougher because uh, she was a woman? Yes, it was, you know, because most, especially when the men come, well, they are also seen as failures, but they're able to, you know, go into hiding a bit, live with friends, you know, so that they don't have much contact with society. But here is a, a case of Fatih has a commitment home, she has a family and children that, you know, was a main goal, was a primary concern of coming back. So Fatih's situation was quite um, uh, different. And most of times, to you know, uh, in Fatih's case, she was the only woman in her community at that time to have embarked on such journey. So first of all, she was even seen as, um, a, I don't know the word to use, but kind of a, a loose woman in society, you know, for her to trek, you know, to go, to go through the Sahara, you know, a lot of things happen, you know, from what I spoke to her, she, she encountered a lot of uh, sexual abuse and all that. So she, her personality was already kind of stained, mm-hmm. you know, yes. So for a woman, it was a heavy burden to carry. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back with more on Fatih's Choice in a moment. Fred Film Radio. We're back with Fatih Madazi, director of Fatih's Choice, a documentary recently presented in Doc Leipzig. And the question I haven't asked yet is, how did you meet Fatih and how did you encounter her story? So, um, like, um, I had a cousin who also tried crossing the Sahara and uh, the Mediterranean to Libya because I already had an idea and I, I really, really had um, a conversation. So that's where actually my research started. I was having a conversation with him and all that, you know, because he also came back, you know, and a lot of people were laughing at him and he couldn't, he couldn't even get to Italy. He got to, I think, uh, Libya and had to come back. But the conditions were so bad that he didn't have the guts to even go further. 
So I was having a conversation with him and he said, well, one of his colleagues that they traveled on the boat with, that they met in Libya, managed to get to Italy, but uh, she decided to come back home. But he doesn't understand why um, she had to take, you know, such decision because it's not an easy fit and all that. So that's when I, you know, I told him that, well, I, ne- I will need a contact because her story sounds very interesting because I really got inspired, you know, by her decision because it's not an easy thing to do. It's not that Fatih was unaware that her coming back home will create that kind of, um, uh, she will face that kind of criticism. You know, it is something that is in society, but she, she didn't really bother about what people would think of her and all that, you know. So we talked for about six months, you know, before meeting her in person. And then um, surprisingly, when I started to was, she sounded so, you know, she, she sounded like a very positive person. You know, she was very uh, affable, you know, somebody who really wanted to share a story and all that. But when I met her in person, I went to her house. I was very surprised um, with the conditions, you know, she was in at that time, you know, compared to how, you know, her demeanor was on the phone. She was very, you know, positive, laughing and all that. So I was really, you know, I was just inspired, seriously, because looking at her condition and she didn't sound depressed, you know, I found her to be somebody worth um, doing a film. And she was very happy to share her story, you know, because a lot of people like her that would want to take that kind of a decision, but because they're afraid of what people will say and they are still stuck in their own issues. I mean, so from what you're saying, it sounds like it wasn't that difficult to kind of maybe convince her to be the protagonist of your documentary. I mean, essentially, uh, what, I, what I'd like to ask you is, uh, did she understand what you were trying to do? And, and was she willing to share her story with the, with the world in a way? Yeah. So um, in the beginning, it was very difficult because I have to even on phone, I have to talk to her for about six months before meeting her in person. On the phone, she agreed, but the moment she sees, you know, the crew, like, she's like, no, she's not going to go ahead with it because it was a very small community. So our presence was kind of um, uh, too much for her to take, you know. So she started having, yes, intimidating, yeah. It was quite intimidating and, you know, she started questioning uh, what this was for, you know, and... She was. She couldn't make her mind at that time, especially when the crew became involved. Okay, when we are talking to her on phone without camera, she's okay. She's ready to share her story. But the moment the camera comes in, it was a different issue altogether. So I had to go back, still try as much as possible to build the trust, you know, which wasn't easy at all, you know. So roughly, it took me about a year before I was able to introduce a crew. I had to make sure that the crew is very lean so that it doesn't create any kind of intimidation for her in order to be able to, you know, also get her in her natural state. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the community uh, of people around her too, did you, did you, were they difficult to kind of convince, you know, in a way? Yeah. So it was also not, um, so, you know, when I, when I, uh, because I knew the community has to be involved in the film. So when I started talking to Fatih, 
Um, you know, I go to Fatih's house. I go outside the community, talk to people, you know, so that they also get, you know, involved. And, and they were also not, sometimes you go and they'll all just be in their room and never come out. So it took a lot of, so I started with Fatih and her close friends, you know. So people got used to us and it took a lot of time. You know, for them to get used to us, so with time they started to open up. You know, before they were they were able to accommodate us. But so, it wasn't it wasn't it was tough. I think that was the most challenging part of the documentary, for pe- for them to be uh, accepted it was quite a challenge. Yeah. So it took you, uh, as you said, about one year before you truly could start filming yeah. between talking yes. with her and uh, and kind of getting her used to the idea. And then, so how long did the filming itself go on for? Yeah, so um, it took me from the idea conception to finalizing it took about three years. Three years? It took okay. about three years, yes. And I think that was because of the COVID. So yeah, a lot of, of course, things yeah. was told, yeah. Further complicating so things. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier uh, that you really kind of got your start in in animation, and uh, and so I'm intrigued to to uh, to uh, understand. Do you feel like somehow your background in animation helps you uh, in documentary filmmaking in any way? Yes, it did, because um, when um, do, um, what, during the when I was taking during the, my course. I had the opportunity to do other stuff aside just uh, animating, you know. So if you, for instance, I um, specialize in animation. I had the opportunity to also do the edits and do the directing, you know, and I also work with my colleagues from the other departments. So, you know, I was exposed to the filmmaking experience, how to direct you know, how to direct a character and the patience, you know, to deal with character came from my animation background because it's also a very tough area and which needs a lot of patience. Yes, I didn't think of that, but patience <laughs> would really kind of <laughs> kind of be a part of it, especially when you when you after you said that it kind of took you three years uh, to, to make this film. So that's quite a commitment when I think about it, because three years of your life, really. Um, OK, so it's a really uh, fascinating film. Hopefully uh, the, the, the listeners will be intrigued to want to find out more and, and watch it. I wanted to end our conversation with a very simple question, uh, considering what your film talks about. And kind of your your mission that you've mentioned throughout the conversation as a filmmaker, do you think that cinema can be a powerful tool for communi- uh, communicating messages and telling stories? Absolutely true. It is. First, it, it allows me, for, for me, it allowed me to really express what I had wanted to do all this while. Because we all have a goal. We all have issues that concerns us. You know, and then the language of film, is powerful because now people are seeing Fatih through film. You know, people are, can experience Fatih's life through film. And that alone is a very, very big statement. But so, okay, so it's been great uh, speaking with you, Fatima. Thank yes. you very much for, for, uh, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you too for having me. Fred. 
Cinephile, it is time to dig deep into the filmography of Jean-Paul Belmondo to discover three of the titles he worked on that I feel are landmark movies that best represent him. I am particularly hoping that this short but intense list will help those who are not familiar with the great French leading man and serve as a type of starting point for an exploration of the body of work that he left behind. The inevitable first film to mention is Jean-Luc Godard's seminal 1960 film Breathless, one of the most iconic films of the French New Wave. His portrayal of a disaffected, amoral street punk incorporated a mixture of toughness, spontaneity and comic timing, and there was also a remarkable timelessness about it. The film and the character he played created an entire myth around Belmondo that would be long-standing and would establish him as one of the most iconic leading men in European film history. Of course, the role was so iconic, and he was so good at being the bad boy heartthrob that he risked being pigeonholed by it. But starring in such movies as our second film for this list, Léon Morin, Priest, from a year later in 1961 by Jean-Pierre Melville, certainly helped showcase his versatility. The film documents the relationship between an atheist woman and a local priest in occupied France, and her eventual unrequited lust for him. Here, we find Belmondo more subdued, but perfectly cast, in a film that is a much more cerebral and dramatic affair. And the third film I decided to highlight is a late career one, titled Les Miserables by Claude Deluche from 1995. This is an ambitious project based on the fabled Victor Hugo novel, which rather than being a straight-up adaptation, updates the original source to the 20th century, with events and characters mirroring that of the book, and with Belmondo out standingly playing multiple characters. The whole project is an absolute tour de force and Belmondo's versatility and charisma ends up carrying a lot of the weight of this mammoth, visionary project to create what has rightly been defined as a crowning achievement. One of the many of Jean-Paul Belmondo's career. Jean-Paul Belmondo, we speak your name and we salute you. Back for more BFT after this short break. Fred. If you, like me, are a fan of football, you may be interested to check out a new biopic on the life of one of the most charismatic footballers of our time, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. The film is called I Am Zlatan. It was presented at the recent Rome Film Fest, and I interviewed its director, Jens Hürgen, there. Take a listen. Before you even started uh, working on this film, what did Zlatan Ibrahimovic mean to you personally? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm older than him, so I didn't have that much of a idol. I, I played, I played football, as we all did, but I choose music. So for me, he was just this character that you always followed because he did these amazing things and he told amazing stories. So I was more like interested in his private sides then of course as a Swedish fan you loved when he played in the national teams and stuff like that but for me it was more like uh, this super kind of out of this world type of character so I didn't have that much of a close not like Granit or Dominic who plays Zlatan they had him as an idol for all times but I have always had an immense respect for him do you think that, uh, you know, we all know that he's, uh, he's an iconic figure, he's got a great personality, but as a filmmaker, do you also think that there's something cinematic about him? I mean, he's the most... Cin- uh, that's why he's iconic. 
I mean, 50% he's done amazing things on the pitch, but 50% is because of his personality, mm. his mentality, and the way he uh, connects with people. Yeah. So, I mean, of course I think that, but this was... And is meant to be like a coming-of-age story, and I think that show the untold sides. For me, it's always important to to give the audience a unique view on the character. How does he feel when he's not cocky? How does he feel when he's not Ibra? When he's not the lion? When he's not the greatest football player of the world? That's make it interesting. Yeah. That's why I thought that the Ajax frame story was important to have in one way because it tells us how hard it is when things doesn't turn out the way you thought. And it would, could be the most simple things, not the Hollywood things where it's like always fights and stuff like that. It could be how does it feel to be lonely when you're 21 years old in an area where there is only white people in suburbs and you only sit and play video game and you have no one to talk about. And the only thing you want is to go home to your parents or your friends. That's also a big interesting compliment to the figure we already know as Ibra. That's why I think that despite the fact that this film is about Ibrahimovic, the football player, it also has a more universal resonance, right? I mean, it, it extends to different parts of the world and different people as well. Was that your intention too? Absolutely. I mean, I can all, I, it sounds so great when you tell it and I can just sit here and be a clown and say, oh yeah, sure. But <laughs> that was really my intention because I'm not that of a football fan. This, is, this ain't a football movie. It could no. be anyone, but I found sides in myself when I moved to Stockholm from a small town I had, had didn't know anyone and I really thought I had like working class parents we had no culture at home in that way so for me it was also a journey to find your way around to make it possible for me to start making movies and it mm. took me a while and I had to be cocky and I had to be kicked out and stuff like that so for me it was important when we found the story about the uh, son and the father which are nothing unique about in one sense but I feel that it has, has a universal like tone to it because this could be anyone it doesn't matter if you're from Rosengård or if you're from Rome it has a feel to it that the most important things you go through as a kid is when you maybe see your dad carrying home a, ba a, a, a bed maybe yeah. those scenes are the ones you take out when you meet Atalanta next time or you know, you know what defines a person and that was scenes we looked for a lot and also I think it has universal perspective because I hate the 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 um, uh, the way in Sweden you talk about film is like this is a family movie everyone can go and see it and it is But it ain't a family movie, it's a movie for the family. It doesn't matter if you go yourself or with the family, you can still have different view on what happened. Because when the dad sits and watch TV and see his home country get torn apart by war, as an adult I can see that he doesn't feel well. It's very subtle, there are a lot of beer cans, but it's not put up in the face. And what Slatan doesn't understand is, why is, are you angry now? You were so kind to me just the other day. And I think that discussion is what makes it a universal. Then you can take it home and discuss these things together. Well, that's wonderful. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up. We don't want to make anybody else angry. Okay. <laughs> We've got a few more interviews to go. But thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank and you. this is Fred Film Radio, the festival insider. Fred Film Radio. 
Cinephile, well, we have done it. We've reached the end of yet another episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. But as you know by now, that means that it is also time for another one of our essential Cinephile recommendations and a little conclusive segment that I like to call Popcorn Classics. And more specifically, the films I typically choose for this segment are ones that I feel are not talked about as well or as much as they should be. But that is not always necessarily the case. In fact, the film I have chosen for today's segment is from 1961, and I would hope that most people listening will have seen it. Through a Glass Darkly is one of the most famous and acclaimed films by the great Swedish director Ingmar Bergman, and it is also an Academy Award-winning film for Best Foreign Language Movie. Briefly, the story talks about a young woman recently released from a mental hospital who joins her emotionally disconnected family as they vacation on a remote island retreat. Once there, she gradually begins to slip from reality and believe that she is visited from God. This powerful movie inaugurated Bergman's trilogy on faith and the loss of faith, which would also include Winter Light and The Silence. And I think it's important to understand that the subject of faith is explored here in a most human and naturalist way, which is very unusual for the time. In addition, Bergman here showcases his absolute command of mood and atmospheres as he presents an unflinching vision of a family's near disintegration and documents a gradual descent into the abyss of mental illness. Through a Glass Darkly also features some top-notch acting, including Bergman regular Max von Sydow, but most importantly, Harriet Anderson at her most astonishing in the lead role, whose performance to me is also characterized by powerful expressionist tinges. For all these reasons and more, I solemnly declare Through a Glass Darkly by Ingmar Bergman from 1961 an intense and powerful popcorn classic which deserves five bags of popcorn and five cups of soda. And that's just about it for today's episode of the BFT. Join me again next week for more cinephile explorations on a new episode of the Big Fred Tuesday right here on Fred Film Radio. I also encourage you to visit more content across our various channels and in multiple languages as well, including our recent content from the International Film Festivals of Rome and Venice. Till the next time, stay cinephile and stay tuned to Fred Film Radio, the festival insider. Fred, 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 Fred. Red Film Radio, I'm Matt Nakuchu from the 64th Berlin International Film Festival. Io sono Valentina Pompili, al Tokyo International Film Festival. Soy Antonio Becker y estoy aquí con Bob. Internationalen Filmfestspiel in Berlin. Mein Name ist Beatrice Bieden. Ahlen Bekonfi, Fred Film Radio. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Fred Film Radio, 24-7 on fred.fm and smartphone apps.